Amen. You can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're continuing our study through the book of Matthew. Last week we concluded our two-part series on Jesus' power over death. And we saw that Jesus was accessible, he was available, he was touchable, but he was also impartial and powerful. And uh, this morning we want to look at Matthew chapter 9, and I just want to read for us beginning in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 9. You can follow along in your Bibles. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind man came to him. And Jesus said to him, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the good news about him in all of that country. And as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It has never we have never seen this, anything like this in Israel. It was never seen like this in Israel. Um, I just want to remind you this morning that as we continue through the, the book of Matthew, remember that when God created the world, he created it perfectly. And unfortunately, there was a, a perversion that came along, sin, and it perverted everything that God had made. That, therefore, we know things like uh, pain and sorrow and tears and sweat. And when you go out in your backyard and your garden, you see all the weeds growing. Okay, that's all a result of sin. That's all a result of the curse. And we have lying. We have murdering. We our prayers are with the officers that were killed this just yesterday uh, in Oakland. Three officers gunned down. Uh, just a typical traffic stop. They thought, and their lives were taken from them. And a fourth one is in the hospital. Uh, trying to recover. Families impacted by death. All results of sin. Um, well, God not only shows us the perversion of creation, but he also shows us, which is just a wonderful thing, the promise of God. See, instantly, as soon as man fell, God promised that he would someday come and restore his kingdom. Remember, man was granted dominion over the earth. That's what the Bible tells us. He was the king of the earth. But because of his sin, he forfeited that. And as soon as he did that, some, some God, or God came along and someday said, Man, you know what? Once again, you're going to be king over the earth. I'm going to restore what is rightfully yours. And was taken away as a result of this, the fall. Due to Satan. See, now everything we see around us on this earth, it's in the, the hands of who? It's in the control of who? Satan. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the ruler of this world. Now, yes, it is under God's sovereignty that he allows that to happen. But the kingdom of darkness one day will end. That should be a good place for an Amen. <laughs> the kingdom of light and glory would return and it's going to last forever. See, as soon as man fell in Genesis 3, God gave him a promise that there would be one who would come, who would be the seed of a woman, he says in Genesis, and would bruise the serpent 
who is Satan, he bruised his head. And from that time on, the Old Testament was filled with promises that God would send a deliverer to once again establish the rule of God on earth. And that restoration, when that happens, it's going to wipe out all disease, all death, all pain, all illness, all sorrow, all war, all fighting. We're not going to have to worry about any of that. And the prophets, if you look through the Old Testament, repeatedly, over and over and over and over again, predicted that there would be an anointed son, the king of kings, the lord of lords, Satan's conqueror, who would be a defeater of death, a destroyer of sin, a healer of men. He was going to be coming. One day he would come. The Jewish people knew him as the Messiah, the anointed one. The prophet, the priest, the king. And he would surpass all others. And someday, according to the Old Testament, he will come and he'll establish his throne here on earth. And he'll make this world as God originally intended it to be. What a glorious day that will be. Well, that's the promise of God. But we see in the book of Matthew that the purpose of Matthew, really, is to tell us that Jesus Christ is that promised Messiah and that promised Deliverer, that promised King. And He will right all the wrongs and He will reverse the curse and He will establish a kingdom and He will destroy the enemy. All those things are going to happen. And Matthew is pointing to one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order to convince people, his readers... That Jesus is the Christ, that he has the power to do that. Matthew supernaturally records certain miracles. Now, Jesus did a, a ton of miracles. The, the Word of God says that all the books in the world couldn't contain all the things that Jesus did. It's amazing. He virtually wiped out disease wherever he went. He was healing people nonstop, day and night. And Matthew tells us because of this miraculous power that he possessed that we're seeing in chapters 8 and 9, that fulfills the Old Testament prophecies that were foretold about the one who is coming. And so Matthew basically is saying Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who's given the preview of everything that's going to come. And that's what all these miracles are. They're just a preview of what the kingdom will one day look like. He's not setting down and he's not giving these miracles saying, okay, this is standard operating procedure from now on. That's not what Jesus was doing. He was saying, you know what, I'm just going to give you a glimpse of the glory of the kingdom. And that kingdom will display his power over disease, over death, and over disorder. And that's what we've been looking at in the last couple weeks. And in his first coming, Jesus previewed that power. Now we're in this three sets of three miracles in the Gospel of Matthew. And the last three miracles deal primarily with his power over death. Last week, last couple of weeks, we looked at his power over physical death. And we looked at how he raised a young girl from the dead. Well, now we see not only does he have that power to raise a physical body from the dead, but he even has power to give life back to death members of a living body. And so today we're going to see that Jesus has power to restore sight and to restore speech to those who, because of circumstances, lost 
their sight and lost their ability to speak. And as Messiah, he demonstrated that power when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Remember, the, the ruler of the synagogue. He showed his power over dead people. In Isaiah chapter 29, and this just gives you a glimpse of what some of the Old Testament prophets said about the one who is coming. Isaiah 29 verse 18. Now this is speaking of the kingdom and the coming day when the Messiah finally arrives. But here's what it says. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Now after we get done with our story today that talking about restoring sight and restoring speech, you're going to begin to see, wow, Jesus might be this guy. I think he is. Isaiah 35, 5 to 6, the Old Testament prophet writes, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. See, the Old Testament basically prophesies that when the Messiah came in power, that deaf people would hear, that dumb people, people who couldn't speak, would be able to speak, that all of a sudden the blind would be able to see. Those who were crippled could walk. He would give life back to dead faculties through miracles of sight and sound. Those were the miracles that would be prophesied by the Messiah. And so we see as we've gone through the book of Matthew that he just didn't pick these random miracles, all right? Each one portrayed a glimpse of the coming kingdom. And so it's kind of an important thing to to remember. So let's set the scene here for this morning for our, our message. What are we looking at here? Well, in verse 27, it says, When Jesus departed from there, all right, well, where is there? Okay, that's the house of, Caper- of Jairus in Capernaum. That's where he was. If you read the, the text before that, that's where this miracle, the raising of the, the, the little girl was. <clears throat> and it says when he departed from there. And by this time, it was probably in the evening. And Jesus had a busy day. I mean, you think of everything he did. It's, you know, sometimes when I read the accounts of Jesus in the Bible, I don't know if you watch the show 24 at all. I like to watch the show 24 once in a while. And, and, um, and, and whenever you see that television show, it's hard to imagine everything takes place that you're watching in one hour, literally on the, in the real time of, of the show. And it's just kind of a crazy thing. And sometimes I think that, that Jesus, when we, we see this, all this activity in his, in his life and in his ministry, it's like, wow, I kind of think, wow, it's kind of like this Jack Bauer guy almost. You know, it's crazy. But here it was legitimate. It was real. And Christ was constantly ministering to those people. And we see here that he left the house of Jairus and he probably had a, a mass of humanity following him bunch of people. He was probably just came out of a dialogue with the the disciples of John the Baptist and even uh, debating the Pharisees. And then he goes and he raises this daughter. He follows the the synagogue leader to his house. And on the way, (laughs) he just happens to run in. The woman runs into him, grabs him with an issue of blood, and he heals her too. Busy day. Had to chase away all the mourners from Jairus' house. And then he resurrected this young girl. 
And now, when he leaves there, it says when he departed from there, we see that this miracle takes place of him healing two blind men. Well, as we look at this story, let's first of all consider the condition of these guys. Look at what it says in verse 27. It says, when he departed from there, two blind men followed him. Two blind men. I don't know if you've ever had any experience with blind people. I know when I was in a church in Fremont, we had the blind school there right around the corner from the church. And once in a while, we'd go over there and and try to do some ministry or whatever. And uh, it's kind of interesting. When you're around blind people, you, it, it's just, you know, you, you take certain things for granted. I mean, you, you feel kind of silly when you're talking to a blind person and you're going, yeah, yeah, yeah they can't see you, you know, and you, you're conscious of that. And so, you know, and sometimes when people talk to blind people, they tend to shout, they tend to talk, can you hear me? It's like, well, they're not deaf. And sometimes the blind person, hey, I'm not deaf, I'm just blind. And it's funny how we relate. Well, these two blind men follow Jesus and blindness was a common problem in that part of the world during Jesus' time. In fact, if you look through the Gospels, you're going to find more healings of blind people than any other type of healing. It's amazing. It was very common. And the cause was basically they had a lot of poverty. They had a lot of unsanitary conditions. They lived in a, in a, in a culture, in a, um, in a geographic area that was very bright, brilliant with sunlight, excessive heat, blowing sand. You had all sorts of infections going around. So it wasn't uncommon for people to be blind. And it wasn't even uncommon for people to be blind from birth due to gonorrhea or other diseases. I mean, that's why it's so important when a baby is born today, one of the first things they do is they clean their eyes out and they put eye drops to sterilize their eyes. Because a baby, even today, if you don't do that, could literally go blind if they pick up an infectious disease somewhere along the way. And so... We see blindness is something that was very common in Jesus' day. And because of the way that sometimes people became blind, that maybe explains in John 9-2 when the disciples asked Jesus, Master, who sinned? Remember that? Talking about a blind man, this, this man or his parents that he was born blind. In other words, why is this, this person Blind is maybe their, their, their parents lived an illicit lifestyle or something, or what, what's going on here? They were asking him a question. And so there was all sorts of reasons why people were blind during that time. But these guys were truly blind, two of them. And they probably hung around together to help each other out. Second thing we see there is their cry. He say, it says in verse 27, it says, They followed him crying out and saying, now look at what they say, Son of God, Son of David, have mercy on us. These two blind men are following Jesus, which is a task in itself. I mean, have you ever tried to play follow a leader with a blind guy? You know, that'd be kind of cruel. I just would. It wouldn't be the right thing to do. Well, here are these two blind guys and all this crowd and Jesus is going through the crowd and people are shoving back and forth and they're trying to follow him and they're shouting out, they're crying out to him. Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, they were probably well aware of what just happened at Jairus' house, that he raised this girl from the dead. 
They were probably well aware of even maybe the, the woman with the issue of blood. They heard talk about it. Because all these people were following Christ. And you stop and you think. Wherever you look in the Gospels, you see multitudes. Multitudes followed. Jesus went and the multitudes followed. You almost see that all the time. And you stop and you ask yourself, I wonder who follows, who's in that crowd of people that are following Jesus? And it's not so different than today. Today you have the brokenhearted who follow Christ. You have the bereft. You have the hurting. You have those who feel unfit, the outcast, the discouraged, the sorrow, sorrowful, the lonely, the sinful, the guilty people. That's kind of who made up this crowd of people who were following Christ. See, you never find someone who's self-sufficient, who has all the resources within themselves, willing to follow anybody, let alone follow Christ. Because they really don't have any questions, they don't have any needs. Sometimes even when you share the gospel with people, you can say, you know, hey... I'd love to introduce you to Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. I don't have any need for that. Sometimes you get that. I don't want to know him because I don't have any need for that. I don't have any time for that. I'm not a religious person. See, when you run into somebody like that, I always like to pray, well, okay, God, you just heard it from his own lips. He has no need of you. So, God, put a little pressure on him. Make him come to a point in his life where he realizes he needs you. That's a difficult thing to pray. Especially when it's for your own family members. It's difficult. And then you see God beginning to work in their lives. And you're thinking, oh, should I continue to pray this way or not? Because it's hard to see family members, loved ones go through hardship. But you know what? Until people come to their wits end, until they're willing to cry out to God, they won't know him. Look at these men, how they cried out. It says they cried out. That word is used several times in the, in the Gospels. And it's usually used of people who are insane. It's used of people who are epileptic or demon-possessed. People who scream, and their scream is something that's just unintelligible. It's not like they're, they're crying out, you know, words. The crying there... See, we read that and we say, oh, they cried out. And what they said was, son of David, have mercy on us. No. See, the, 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 the sentence structure in the original is they were crying out unintelligible noise. And then they also said, son of David, have mercy on us. So you could tell that they're miserable. Have you ever been in a hospital or maybe in a care home and you're walking down the hallway and... I always hate this when I hear this. You hear somebody in a room somewhere, help me, help me. And, you know, I used to go down the hall, I was like, are you okay? You know, and the nurse comes out, he's fine, don't worry about him. You know, he just does this all day long. Sure enough, you go back to the same hospital, visit the same person a couple days later, and you hear the same guy, help me. And it's just the state they're in. But these guys were screeching, they were yelling. It's, it's used when Jesus, on the cross, he cried out. Same word, and he gave up his spirit. It's used of a woman who was groaning in Revelation 12, 2, with the pains of childbirth. So it doesn't mean that they were necessarily speaking something intelligible here. 
It's talking about cries of agony. And it shows their desperation. It shows the pleading. Their deep need. And it's that desperation that often results in spiritual regeneration. When you come to your wit's end and you're just crying out to God. And look at what they declare. They say, thou son of David, have mercy on us. So at one point they're crying out just unintelligible words, but then somewhere there they, they, they use words and they say, son of David, have mercy on us. Do you ever, why would they call Jesus of Nazareth son of David? Did they know that his lineage was from Joseph and Mary and they were both born in the line of David? In Matthew 1, 1, that's what we see, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, it says. The title, Son of David, it's a common Jewish designation for the Messiah. And Matthew was well aware that it would be recognized by his Jewish readers. And so he began the gospel with it in Matthew 1.1. Let me just read, you don't have to turn there, in 2 Samuel 7. Read a, a verse, a couple verses here because it talks about the promised Messiah. It says in 2 Samuel seven twelve to 14 And when the days be fulfilled, uh, you shall sleep with your fathers, and I will set your seed after you, and you shall proceed out of your own body, and I will establish his kingdom, and shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father, and he will be my son. See, because that promise was not fully realized through, obviously, Solomon... The Jewish people knew that ultimately it referred to the son of David who would come. And several times throughout the scriptures, in a, in a couple of weeks when we read about uh, what happened on Palm Sunday in Matthew 29, 8-9, it says, A very great multitude spread down their garments in the way they cut down palm branches, and they laid them on the, uh, the street there, and the multitudes went before him, and they followed, crying, saying, Hosanna to what? The son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And so they acknowledged Jesus to be the Messiah. And they used that correct Messianic title, Son of David, to do so. Uh, even in Matthew 22, verses 41 and 42, it says, When the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus uh, asked them, saying, What do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? And they said unto him, The son of David. Even the, the Pharisees knew that term. So it was a very common term. And when the two blind men called Jesus the son of David, they were really affirming within themselves that he was the long-awaited Messiah. They had probably heard about the miracles. They couldn't see him, but they could hear about the miracles that happened. And they probably remembered in the Old Testament what it said in Isaiah, and they thought, wow, you know, it says that, yeah, he's going to raise the dead, but didn't it say something about him healing blind people? we got to get to this guy. Because if he's truly the Messiah, I think our problem's going to be taken care of. And when Jesus did the things that the Messiah was supposed to do, it became apparent to many, including these two blind men, that he had fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies and that he probably was who he said he was, the Messiah. Now, look at what they say after they say Son of David. They acknowledge him as a Messiah. And then they say, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. 
See, they also carried within themselves not only the acknowledgement of who Christ was, but they really showed their their need of a Savior. When they said, have mercy on us, it showed the genuineness of their faith. So they had a knowledge, but they also had a right kind of attitude about it. They knew they needed God's mercy. They didn't just march up to Jesus and say, hey, heal us. That's not how you approach the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I believe they had a spiritual need as much as a physical need. And they believed from what they had experienced that Jesus had the power to bring these kingdom blessings And yet they were in Christ's presence and they knew that they were undeserving. So they asked for mercy. See, that's something you would never hear a Pharisee ask for. You would never hear a Pharisee ask for mercy. Because they thought they were self-sufficient. See, you can't come to Christ for salvation and say, well, you know what, I'm going to come to Jesus and I'm just going to kind of put him on top of everything else that's in my life. Just kind of like a little, you know, cherry on top of a Sunday. Now I got Jesus on board and now we'll just continue to live the way I live. It's not going to work. That's not what, what Christ expects. It's not what he demands. You have to come to Christ with a need. You have to come to Christ realizing that you don't deserve anything from Him. You need more than anything else His grace and His mercy. Grace is God giving us something that we don't deserve. Mercy is withholding, God withholding something we do deserve. We are under the judgment of God because of our sin. And when we realize that, that we have nowhere else to go, we can't go down to the courthouse and say, hey, can you deal with this sin thing for me? It's not going to work. You can't go anywhere else. You know, what what are you going to do? I watched a a thing over uh, a movie on Martin Luther, an older movie, black and white one, a couple, or last week actually. And uh, it, it showed Martin Luther, you know, coming to realize that, wow, all the Catholic Church and all the stuff that they had, all the prayers and the rosaries and all this stuff wasn't sufficient. And he came to his wit's end. And he began to realize, wow, the Bible says that it's not by these things we're saved. It's not by a church. This church can't save you. This isn't the only church on the block. It's not about what church you go to. It's about what you're doing with Christ. Where is Christ in your life? Is he the Lord of your life? Or is he just a, something like a cherry on top? He wants to be, he desires to be the Lord of your life. That requires us to come to him with a need. And that need is for his mercy. And a Pharisee would never ask for that because they were self-sufficient. They thought they had earned everything. That God had to give, and the way they earned it was by their works. And so they didn't see a need for mercy. The Bible tells me that it's for by grace we have been saved through faith. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. 
Can you imagine what it would be like in heaven if we got there by doing something on our own? We'd be all standing around, hey, how'd you get here? Oh man, I was helping the poor. And I was, you know, we'd be bragging on ourselves 24-7 in heaven. Because that's what we do. If you don't believe me, just share Christ with somebody and immediately they say, well, I'm a good person. They start down that road. Oh, you're a good person, are you? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever thought a bad thought? Have you ever taken something that's not yours irrespective of its value? Well, yeah, but, you know, well, then you're not a good person. The Bible says there's no such thing as a good person. The Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have gone their own way. There's no way that anyone is going to get to heaven by what they do. It's only by what Christ has done. And when we put our faith in what Christ has done, His righteousness, His sinlessness is imputed to us. It's given to us. And we stand righteous before God, not because Steve Converse is righteous, but because Christ is righteous and I put my faith in Him. Important point. But when we come to Christ, we have to come to Him with a need for mercy. And I think Christ was aware of how unworthy these guys were, and he understood their attitude. You know, Christ was the most merciful person that ever lived, if you stop and think about it. He reached out to sick people, and he healed them. He reached out to uh, crippled people, and he, he uh, you know, gave them legs to walk on. He healed the blind and the deaf and the dumb. He hung around with prostitutes and tax collectors, and he showed them his love and his forgiveness, and they came to him. He even stopped a funeral procession one time and put his hand on the casket and raised a child from the dead because he cared. That's why Hebrews 2.17 says that our Lord was made like his brethren that he might be a, faith, a merciful and faithful high priest. See, we don't serve a God, beloved, that is just detached from us, that can't relate to us. We serve a God who literally came down to earth, took on a body, a human body, and still retained his divinity, and he was 100% man, 100% God. I don't know how that worked, but that's who he was. And so when we look at the life of Christ, we see times when he's frustrated. We see times when he's you know, sweating drops of blood due to anxiety. And you say, well, I thought he was God. He was God, but he was in a human bod. So... The body still responded the same way. And so, praise God that we serve a Lord that can relate to us that way. When we're going through our hardships and our hard times, He's just not up there in heaven going, I'll deal with it. No, He's saying, you know what, I know exactly what you're dealing with. Because I walked on earth for 30-some years, and I gave my life for you. And so here you have these guys begging him to extend mercy that they knew they really didn't deserve. What I think is weird, our merciful Jesus just ignores them. <laughs> I mean, you know, they're walking along the road here. They departed from the house. These blind guys are following him. They're crying out. So they're in anguish. And then they're saying, Son of David... Have mercy on us. They're acknowledging that He's the Messiah. They're acknowledging their need of a Savior. 
And then verse 28 says, and when he had come into the house. So they continue to walk. He doesn't even acknowledge him. And these poor guys are bumping into people and trying to, you know, follow Christ. And you're thinking, what's going on here? And they were begging him to show his mercy. He didn't even acknowledge their cries. And yet they continued to pour out their hearts. They were persistent. See, if their faith was real, if their faith was genuine, they would persist in following Jesus. They wouldn't turn around until he healed them. See, in this way, he really set them up. He was testing their faith. He was allowing their faith to run the gamut and to go to the extreme to prove its genuineness. Sometimes, I think God does that with us. Sometimes we get impatient. We go to God and we ask Him for something and He doesn't just, boom, answer our prayer. And, you know, maybe days... Hours turn into days, and days turn into weeks, and weeks turn into months, and maybe months turn into years, and we're still praying for poor Uncle Charlie who's on his deathbed, and he still hasn't made a profession of Christ. And we're saying, God, do something. See, persistence is an important part of our faith. Well, that leads us to this confrontation that takes place in verse 28. It says, when he had come into the house, he finally reached the house where he was staying in Capernaum, probably Peter's house, the one that we saw pictures of a couple weeks ago. He didn't have his own house. Christ really didn't have anything. He was staying in a guest house, in Peter's house. So it said, when he came into the house, look at what happens. Look at their persistence. The blind men came to him. Now, he's going in a private residence, okay? And there's still a bunch of people and a crowd and stuff. But, I mean, usually, I mean, even the paparazzi, when the people go in their, their residence, they, you know, they stop at the gate or the door. You know, they, they'll be trespassing. These guys don't care. I mean, they couldn't see, but still, they probably, somebody probably say, hey, you're going into their house. Jesus returned home after this busy day of teaching, healing, walking among all these people. And the fact that Jesus would even allow these guys to follow him into this house where he probably was desirous of some privacy showed his mercy. He, he didn't have a lot of privacy, Christ didn't. He just didn't. I mean, so many of us are so, you know, particular about our space. You know, I need my time alone. I need my... It's almost like Christ didn't know what that was. It's a good example. It's a good example for me. Who don't, I don't like crowds. I don't like being in a group. I mean, if you know, I'm in a group of people. I mean, that'll wear me out quicker than running or anything. Just emotionally, I don't know why. Just the way I'm made. But here, Christ was no problem. If you look back in the the different miracles throughout this gospel, you're going to see every time when Jesus heals somebody, it always involved their persistence. How Jesus took that person from physical healing 
to a place of spiritual conversion. He allowed their faith to be stretched. Stop and think with me just for a second when you think of the friends of the paralytic. Remember the guy who brought the guy on a pallet to Jesus because he was in this house? And they couldn't get in because it was so crowded? Think of the persistence of these guys. They go up on the roof and they dig a hole in the roof and drop the guy down. I mean, that's being persistent. You know, they didn't look at the house and go, Hey, you know what? Sorry, Charlie. It's crowded today. We've got to go home, you know, maybe another day. Didn't do that. They found a way to bring their friend before Christ. Even the ruler that we looked at of the synagogue also showed persistence. You remember when he first confronted Christ and Christ agreed to heal his dying or to raise his, his dying daughter. But he was stopped on the way by this woman with an issue of blood. I mean, if I was the father with a dying daughter and Christ is on the way to heal him, I don't care who's getting in the way. Nobody, you know, hey, this is nothing. You know, my daughter's dying. You got to go there. And yet this man continued in faith, believing. And then even when the people came and said, hey, you know what? Too late. She's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. He still had faith that Christ could bring her back to life. Or even the woman who grabbed the tassel that we looked at last week desperately working her way through this crowd and dealing with all the shame that's involved and everything else because she just knew that she could touch the hem of his garment somehow that she could be affirmed in her faith that she'd be healed. See, he did that. The purpose was to elicit their confession. Jesus asked the blind man, look at what he says. Do you believe that I am able to do this? In verse 28. Seems Kind of like a silly question to us. If it was obvious that they believed he could heal them, why didn't he just do it? Why did he ask this question? See, its purpose was not to deny their belief that he was the Messiah, nor to question about you know whether he had the power to heal. He knew they believed that. I think he asked them basically because he wanted to hear their own profession, their own confession of faith. In Romans 10.9 it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're going to be saved. That's what the Apostle Paul said. And I think that's what he's drawing out of these two guys. That's why he's almost being rude to them. He's just ignoring them. Probably thinking, hey, I wonder how long they're going to persist. If they're genuine, they're going to persist. See, I believe Jesus is drawing out this verbal confession of this blind, the blind man's faith. And it really stands as a testimony of what's necessary for conversion. But I think also Jesus wanted to evaluate their confession. He desired to separate them from all the crowd that was there, everybody else that was looking for a political deliverer. In effect, Jesus was saying, are you following me because I'm a man with charisma, or I can do this, or I can do that? Why are you following me? Are you willing to affirm my lordship? That's what he wanted to know. See, because remember, we looked at this in the previous weeks, faith was never necessary for healing. It wasn't. You know, we hear this thing, faith healers. That's really not a proper term. Because Jesus healed people with faith, but he also healed people that had no faith at all. 
So faith is really a non-issue when it comes to a sovereign God choosing to heal somebody. He could heal Christians just as quick as he could heal atheists. So faith is not the issue when it comes to physical healing. But when it comes to spiritual healing, it's the only issue there is. Faith is necessary for conversion. And so Jesus wanted to bring these men as far as their faith would take him. When a man recognizes his need of mercy, as these men did, and that Jesus was the promised Messiah, as these men did, and is willing to submit to their his lordship, that basically is a saving faith. See, it's not good enough just to come to church and to sing songs and to sit in a chair and hear somebody teach the Bible and walk out of here thinking, well, I guess I'm a Christian because that's what Christians do. There's going to be people that do that all their lives and one day they're going to die and they're not going to be going to heaven. They're going to stand in judgment of God because they never had a relationship with Christ. They just had a religion. They had an experience. They had something that eased their conscience, that they could come and fulfill their weekly duty and then live like they want the rest of the week, and then next week do the same thing. I mean, it always blew me away growing up as a Roman Catholic, how, I mean, as an altar boy and everything, I mean, you had like a just total respect for the priest and everything that went on on the altar and everything. And I'll never forget when my two sisters were married... And I saw our priest at the reception smoking and drinking alcohol to the point of being drunk. Just blew my mind. I mean, this guy was like God to me. And when I saw that, I said, what's, what's, (laughs) is that father? This, This can't be. And I was young. I was just, you know, teenage years or even pre teenage years at that time. And I thought, what is this disconnect? I don't get it. I mean, these are religious people. Why aren't they living a life that would be pleasing to God? Why are they doing these things? Or when we'd have a bingo night at the the church and we'd raffle off a big, they called it the barrel of booze. They'd have a wheelbarrow, literally filled with alcohol. Not just beer, I mean hard alcohol. And I'm thinking, okay, I guess. You know, that's the family I was raised in. I was raised in a family of alcoholics, basically. And so I saw what alcohol did to people. You know, it just didn't make them feel good. It destroyed their family. It destroyed them physically. It affected their mentality and and everything. And so when I saw that, I thought, well, you know, and I wasn't, I mean, God wasn't really necessarily working in my heart at that time. So I didn't, you know, just kind of, that's the way it is. He wanted to evaluate their confession here. It's not good enough to say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, I go to church. That doesn't cut it. That's why when the men said here in verse 28, he says, do you believe that I am able to do this? Look at their answer. They looked, they didn't look, but they, <laughs> they said to him, I said they they looked at him and said, but that wouldn't make sense. Maybe they did. They turned their head that way. I don't know. But look at the words that they said. Yes, Lord. See, that's more than just a term of respect. They weren't just saying, yes, sir. 
Because of the other elements like persistence and their confession of faith and all these things, they were making a saving affirmation that Christ is the Messiah. We heard their cry, the Son of David have mercy. We saw their condition, their confrontation. Do you believe? And then look at their conversion in verse 29. It says, Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. See, at that moment, all of a sudden, their faith burst into full bloom, and I believe they became children of God at that moment. Jesus often touched people when he healed them. That's kind of the manner he used here. It's kind of a way to express his tenderness. So he touched these blind men's eyes. But it's, it's simple. It's simplistic. There's no sideshow here. There's no big fanfare. You don't see Jesus saying, okay, everybody stand back. You're going to see the power now. Look out. Here it comes. And, you know, that's what they do on TV, don't they? I mean, it's crazy. Then you got people toppling over and all this. It's nuts. You never saw that with Christ. It was simple. Simple. He just reached out, touched their eyes, and they were healed. Not a big deal. Didn't take a lot of energy. Nothing. He was God. The one who can raise all whoever died from their dead graves could handle a couple of blind fellows. No problem for him. And when he touched their eyes, it says they were opened. I mean, can you imagine these guys? First, I mean, they're seeing. I mean, I could not imagine being without the ability to see. I just can't imagine it. All of a sudden, having your, your your sight taken from you. I mean, just think of that for a second. The smallest little, I mean, standing at the sink looking for your toothbrush. I mean, it would be difficult. I mean, the smallest little thing would become a task. And all of a sudden, boom, their eyes are opened. And then he says this, the measure of their faith, according to your faith, be it unto you. How much faith did they have? Did they have enough faith to be healed? Obviously, yes. Did they have enough faith to be saved? Obviously, yes. If they had enough faith to be saved, then salvation is what they received. Because faith isn't really mandatory, as we said, for healing. But it is mandatory for salvation. And as Jesus tested their faith, he found that it was big enough to encompass their own redemption. Archbishop Trench says this in... In the article, The Miracles of Our Lord, he says this, The faith, which in itself is nothing, is yet the organ for receiving everything. It is the conducting link between man's emptiness and God's fullness. And herein lies all the value it has. It is the bucket let down into the fountain of God's grace, without which man could never draw water of life from the wells of salvation. For the wells are deep. And of himself, man has nothing to draw with. It is the purse which cannot of itself make its owner rich and yet effectively enriches by the wealth which it contains. See, faith is the channel through which we receive God's grace. Through faith, these blind men receive not only their healing, but they receive their salvation. And then he commands them in verse 30. 
He says, see that no one knows this. He sternly warns them. I mean, it almost seems ridiculous that Jesus would even say this. I mean, can you imagine being blind and now you can see, but you can't tell anybody? What are you supposed to do? You know, fake running into things and stuff? I mean, you can see. You would be excited about it. I mean, did this mean that they'd have to go around with their eyes closed? I mean, what, what's he saying here? And it's a very serious warning. This isn't just, you know, oh, by the way, don't let anybody know about this. It's a very, very strong word in the original language. It's, refer, it's referred to occasionally as, as the snorting of a horse, which sounds kind of weird, but it has the idea of scolding someone. It's a very kind of intense warning. And some people say, well, why was he so adamant? I mean, you know, some people say, well, he was trying to hide that he was a miracle worker. Well, that wasn't true because he did these things in public. And you can come up with all sorts of reasons. But I think there's, there's kind of, you know, we can put the, we don't know why he did this, but there's three, three reasons. First of all, political problems. The, you know, if you, if you have this guy going out, these men going out proclaiming that Jesus is the son of David, it's going to create some premature political tensions for Christ's ministry. I mean, we saw what ultimately the political tensions did to Christ. They crucified him. So it may have been Christ just saying, you know, at this point, it's, it's, it's not time. But then also publicity. Christ was very careful what kind of publicity was, was out there about him. Um, and so, you know, he was maybe concerned about that. He didn't want, you know, some kind of inaccurate message going out. Or maybe just... He wanted people to draw conclusions for themselves. He wanted people to deal with their own, their own personal problems rather than make judgments about him based on heresy. So, you know, rather than going out and telling everybody, just let them come and see for themselves. Well, for whatever reason, Christ told them that. And obviously they didn't listen. Verse 31, it says... You see their contrariness here. But when they departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. They just went out and told everybody they could find. And that's understandable. I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, that's kind of a, a common sense thing to do. They were commanded not to speak, and yet they disobeyed the command. I'm, I'm glad that the story doesn't end right there. <laughs> that the story continues, because it's like, well, what happened to these guys? Well, look at what it says. Because even though they disobeyed what Christ told them to do, and this is a picture of us when we come to Christ. You know, when we're new believers in Christ, we, we do all sorts of things that God is probably not telling us to do. We're, we do all sorts of things that probably dishonor God and, and do things that are not within his will, and he's up there just going, what are you doing that for? But you know what? We see their commitment of their saving faith in verse 32 and 33. It says, and when they went out, these two guys, it says, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. The first thing these guys did as an indication that their faith was genuine, that they were truly saved, not only healed, but saved, they went out and they found their poor buddy who was mute because he was demon-possessed. And they probably hung around with this guy as they laid in the gutters begging for, for money or whatever they did together. But they went out and they found this guy and they, it says they brought him a dumb man. One who's deaf or dumb. He can't, 
can't hear, can't speak. Now, it's one thing to doubt somebody's salvation because of their disobedience to God. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's why I said I'm glad the story doesn't stop where they were just disobedient and that was it. But it continues. And Matthew records here for us evidence of their salvation, that they were committed to Christ, even though they messed up on the command that he gave them, don't tell anybody they went out and told people. Still, God was gracious to them. And they brought back this, their friend. I mean, think how bold that is. Sometimes we do things as new believers that are very bold and and very... um, not really sensitive to other people. I mean, here's Jesus saying, hey, make sure you don't tell anybody about this at all. I'm sternly warning you. Okay. They run out and they grab somebody. Hey, look at what Christ did for us. And they bring them back to Christ. You know, and that's how new believers are sometimes. You know, you, you, you talk to a new believer and they say, okay, now, now just sit down a second. I know you're saved. And I know you're excited. But now when you go home and you witness to your family, Okay, you, you might want to just be a little more tactful rather than just kicking in the door and saying, you're all going to hell and you need to get saved because I got saved today. That may not work. But you know what? Usually they don't listen. They go home, they kick in the door and they're shouting and screaming and then the people get upset and they got this major family thing going on. And God, you know, works things out over a period of time. But we all are that way. We all disobey at points in time. But this shows their commitment. They were willing to bring this guy, their friend, right back to Christ. And it says there, in verse uh, uh, 33, and when the demon was cast out, doesn't tell us how. Jesus didn't get a wooden cross and, you know, garlic and all this other weird Hollywood stuff. Didn't need that. He probably said, be gone, and it was gone. It was done. Doesn't make a big fanfare about it. This is normal stuff to Jesus. And it says the man spoke immediately. And it says the multitude marveled, saying it was never seen like this in Israel. In other words, this is truly incredible. We've never seen something like this happen. These blind men see now this this demon-possessed guy who's been hanging around our town for years. Now he's normal. And then you put that on top of this the dead girl being raised and the woman with issue of blood. I mean, he's just healing everybody. It's amazing. I'm glad it ends this way because... It shows us these two blind men who now can see in their new faith, they were weak and they were disobedient. But they were also committed enough to bring another fellow beggar to Christ. And beloved, that's what we're we're left here to do as the church. We're here to reach out to a lost and dying world with a message that offers them hope and forgiveness and grace and mercy. Hopefully backed up by a life that's filled with grace and mercy and forgiveness in legitimacy, so when we share Christ with them, they see something different. They sense something different. I mean, the goal of the church is to take the message to the lost. That's what we're called to do. When we leave these four walls, that's when the work begins. That's when the real ministry begins. It doesn't happen here. 
This is to build you up. This is to teach you in your faith, to encourage you. But as soon as you walk out those doors, you're going places that I will never go. You're going to be in an office Monday morning that I may never dawn the, the door of. But you are, and you're there faithfully every week. And you're living a life before your coworkers, and, and they're observing you. They're watching you. And what's the message that they're seeing? Hopefully not just by your life, but by your lips as well. Are you, are you witnessing to them? Are you sharing your faith with them? Are you looking for ways not to be some religious fanatic and take a 20-pound Bible and set it on your desk so everybody sees you're a Christian? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about basic ways to reach out to people. They like sports. We'll talk to them about sports. But somehow, bring the message around to Christ. They like airplanes. Talk to them about airplanes. But bring the message around to Christ. You can talk to anybody about anything and bring it back to Christ if you so desire. See, that's what's so neat about this story this morning. It's really a picture of our salvation. Because you see, first of all, these blind men, they had a need. They were blind. That's where salvation begins. Some of you may be sitting here this morning and say, well, I don't think I have a need. Well, I got news for you. You got a big one. You just don't see it. That's where salvation begins. No one comes to God unless they sense a need. Why would you need a Savior if you don't need to be saved? That'd be like being, you know, uh, Mark Spence or something and saying, oh, I can't go in the water because there's no lifeguard here today. Why? You're not going to need a lifeguard. You're, you're a pretty proficient swimmer. See, in our mind today, we don't have a need because we're, we're sufficient in ourselves. We don't need a Savior because we don't realize that we've broken our ranks with God through sin. We have a need. Secondly, they had knowledge. They found out that Jesus was the Son of God. You know, you're being told this morning that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. We're seeing evidence of it. They also had a sense of sinfulness. They cried out, have mercy on us. And their faith caused them to pursue Christ. Jeremiah 29.13 says this, You shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all of your heart. Some of you may be here today and you may not have all the answers. You know, all the T's aren't crossed and the I's aren't dotted and everything. But you know what? Be persistent in your search of faith through Christ. He'll meet you there. Be persistent in it. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. They had a confession. They said, yes, Lord, he is Lord. That was an affirmation that they were willing to submit and devote their entire lives to the Lordship of Christ. You can't come to Christ halfway, beloved. You can't put one foot in, one foot out and do the hokey pokey and shake it all about. That's not what salvation is about. Okay, either you're in or you're out. Either you're on your way to heaven through the blood of Christ or you're not. There's no gray area here. They confessed that Christ was Lord. They, had, they were converted according to your faith that be done unto you. They showed their weakness, which I think is so neat. They were disobedient. Ephesians 4.14 talks about new believers, and it says sometimes we can't discern between right and wrong. We're tossed to and fro, carried away by every wind of doctrine. Kind of like you're in the ocean, just like gone with waves and waves. That's why as new believers we have to come together and be taught the Word of God so that we can grow and mature in our faith. But lastly, you see their usefulness there. 
even though they were disobedience, disobedient to Christ's command, they had a desire to bring somebody to Christ. See, and that's true of new Christians. They often grab the nearest person to them and drag them to the Lord and say, Look, it's real. He changed my life. Jesus truly is the Messiah. If you haven't come to that conclusion, you're living really in opposition to all the evidence you're seeing before you. I pray that you cry out to him this morning. Ask him to forgive your sins. He'll do that for you. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful story that we've read and and this example even of our salvation, how that we have to have a need and we have to know that we're unworthy. We have to know that you're the answer and we persist in our faith and Lord, eventually we confess you openly. Father, we pray for those who may be here this morning who haven't yet been converted, haven't yet felt your presence in their life. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Father, that you would draw all to you that you desire to come. Thank you for your word today. Pray you bless this day. Pray that we would live this week for you, that we'd reach out to those around us with the love and grace of God through Christ. We ask this and pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.